This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success, the podcast designed to inspire you and give you actionable information to enhance, up-level, reimagine, and reinvent your life and your livelihood. No matter where you started, where you are now, or where you've been, you too can lead an authentic, first-class life. Each week, new stories of turning points and transformation will help you define what success means to you so you can live your best life on your terms. Now here's your host, first-class life mentor and certified profiting from your passions coach, Kate Fessler. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and my guest today is Sharon Saylor. Sharon has been affectionately dubbed the difficult people whisperer. She teaches conscious, courageous communication skills and is one of the leaders for body language, according to globalgurus.com. Sharon's a published author of seven books, a perennial favorite being What Your Body Says and How to Master the Message. And if that's not enough, she's the host of the Autoimmune Hour on Life Interrupted Radio. Her first children's book, Pinky Chenille and the Rainbow Hunters, just launched and has become an international bestseller on Amazon already. Welcome, Sharon. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you today. You're called the difficult people whisperer. (laughs) When and how did you discover you had a gift for this? What made you want to work with difficult people? Oh, that's a that's a two part question. Let me say the first the second part first. What made me decide? Getting thrown into the trenches of corporate America made me decide that (laughs) very Mm. quickly. Not that I really decided to work with them, but when you work with a lot of difficult people, you gather a lot of skills. And how do you are you able to manage them, calm them down, redirect them, keep them focused, things like that. So uh, when did I affectionately become a dub that? A few years ago, um, you know, time slips away. I travel a lot. Time slips away. I'd say probably about five years ago when I started doing a lot of work with corporations in teams. And one of the biggest questions is, we've got one or more characters in this team. How do we get them all to work together? Now, it's interesting how people define difficult people. Oftentimes, it's just different personality styles, yet a big part of the team sees one particular, we'll use the name John, just for keep it interesting you know, yeah. you know john is is not difficult he's just got a different personality style than the rest of the team maybe he's more mm. community minded maybe he's the one that says wait 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 we can't make a decision until susan comes back from that conference call when all the rest of the team is we got to decide now well then he's all of a sudden labeled difficult you know, mm. maybe maybe not it would just if you're in a different team he'd be considered just one of the game yeah, or maybe he's saying it's my way or the highway. <laughs> could be, could be. We got to work with people to find out what is their real intention and what outcome do they really want? Because oftentimes, once we understand what somebody's intention is and what is the outcome they really want, we can mm-hmm. begin to dissect, okay, they're not being difficult. They just don't have the skills to get across what, it, what they're thinking, what their ideas are, how they can be a useful part of the team. Mm, And it is all about perception, right? How you're (laughs) interpreting what the other person is saying or doing. Oh, absolutely. How many times can you be at an event, maybe a big networking event, and 
something triggers you, maybe a loud voice, the accent, the tone of voice, just the manner that somebody brusquely walks in, whatever, something triggers you and you automatically get in a defensive mode. And, you know, it could go downhill from there. Now, which one of you is being difficult? Them because they came in in a very manner that triggered you? Or are you being difficult because you were triggered? So right. it can go many, right. many ways. <laughs> yeah, indeed. A few podcasts ago, I interviewed a woman who's written a book called Conscious Communications. It seems to be a hot topic these days, but you've been doing this for a while. You use the term courageous as well. How do you define conscious, courageous communication? And what are some examples of, of this? Oh, great question. How I define conscious, courageous communication is just being able to know what you need to say. And before you say it, know your intention and your outcome again. Those are critically important because that will help you frame it in a way that it will be heard. Too often, in fact, just the other day I was coaching someone who got triggered and wanted to fire something back at their team member and realized, look, there's a lot of judgment in that. Mm -hmm. And being able, the courageous part is about standing up, having firm boundaries, being able to talk about what you want to talk about. The conscious part is how do we say it so it will be heard? There are many, many ways to say things. And I liken it to, like, say, I speak English and you speak French. I can be speaking to you all day long and you're not hearing me. Now, mm -hmm. if I, even in a maybe a haphazard or a broken way, spoke French to you, you would go, oh, she's trying. Let's, you know, let me meet her somewhere in the middle. She's trying. So that's the conscious part. How will it be heard? There's an old saying is, the message you sent is the response you got back. So if you send a message and the response you get back, you're just crossing your eyes and shaking your head like, what? Well, you weren't very clear because the response you got back is really the message you sent. Hmm. Well, I'm going to have to argue a little bit with that because what I found is that I try to be super clear in my communication, sometimes in email especially, and I find that people don't actually read them. They shoot back an answer that has absolutely nothing to, or they read the first line and then they ask a bunch of questions that they're like, I'm like, well, it's all there in the email. Maybe if you'd actually read it. <laughs> well, we're talking a different form of communication. My answer was for verbal communication like in teams oh, and things. Okay. I began to question multiple times, especially as email is approaching probably what, two decades now a plus if that's really a form of communication, it's a form of miscommunication too often. Wow. Recently, mm -hmm. I had someone, I was working up in New York just a couple of days ago, and I had someone email me. So where's the meeting? I had put the meeting address in the subject line. And they said, oh, I never read the subject lines. <laughs> okay, fine. So, you know, I agree. It's a different style of communication in email, but you still need to understand what, what is their preferred method. Some people don't like to read. Some people don't read very well, and email can confuse them. And too often when I work with uh, a lot of people nowadays, they rely on texting and email. Mm -hmm. When their audience, or I'll say their team members, whomever they're working with, their clients, really prefer the phone or face-to-face -face meetings. 
So we have to meet them where they're at. We can't always expect them to come and listen to our way of being. Once we meet someone and try to meet them, even if it's just halfway, it's amazing how flexible people will become. But if we stay really strident in our way of communication, like how many young people will only text you? I've had Mm -hmm. so many people say, well, if you want to hear from your kids, text them. If you stay stuck that way and saying, I'm not ever going to text my kids, then you're going, well, how come I never hear from my kids? It becomes this crazy, endless, difficult battle when all it takes is a little flexibility on one part. And for the most part, we're not talking sociopaths here. We're talking most people, okay? Because you'll run into those very begrudging, bullying, other types of personalities that aren't going to meet you halfway. But I found it in the majority of my work, if I make an effort, whatever is their preferred method, even if it's not my favorite method, most people will come around and try and meet me halfway. Maybe they'll know Sharon likes phone calls. So I'll text her half of the time and I'll pick up the phone every so often just to make her happy. Mm. Well, speaking of meeting in person, you are also a body language expert. (laughs) What is body language and why is that important? Body language is actually everything. I even say the verbal language plays into it because we can have a different tone of voice and say something entirely different. I can say the word difficult people or I can say the word difficult people. Mm-hmm. And you get two emotional responses from that. So to me, it's all about nonverbal communication. Body language for me is shorthand for nonverbal communication. I work with people to understand not just what their bodies are saying, but what is the environment saying? When you go into a meeting, where do you want to sit? Depending on your outcome of the meeting, there are multiple places to sit that will give you the best chance of success. So it goes beyond, oh, she's got my her arms crossed. She must be mad at me. I work very little in reading other people other than audiences. When I work with people to do professional speaking, I'll teach them how to read an audience. But if you're in a small group under 10, it doesn't really matter because your body language could be influencing their body language unconsciously. Mm, Mirroring. Yes. You got to be really Mm -hmm. careful. Like I say, deal with your own body language, send the messages that you're wanting to send as you go into the room and continue with the context of the message that you're wanting to send with your body language. And the other people will begin, just as you said, to mirror it. Yeah, and similarly, you know, I often cross my arms and my legs when I'm cold. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with not being engaged or being mad at people. But once I kind of heard that that's how it's interpreted, I try to make a conscious effort then to uncross <laughs> so that it doesn't come across that way. Um, there's actually an easier way. Yeah, there's actually an easier way, though. Oftentimes, I say if you mention the elephant in the room, like, burr, this air conditioning, you know, I'm just going to sort of like huddle up here to stay warm, then people really don't care what you're doing. It's, it's really funny. When you mention the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. it's like, Uh, One time I was flying and I had to go right from the airport to a meeting, but my ears were so plugged I could barely hear. And that's not typically me. But I went into the meeting. I said, I'm so sorry. My ear is still plugged. You guys are going to have to speak up. Nobody cared. Nobody cared that I kept going, what? (laughs) So, Yeah, so just sort of own it and explain it, I guess, so that people don't misinterpret. 
Yeah, I had a young man come to me and he had a speech impediment. And really, he wanted to be a public speaker, a motivational speaker. His story was just amazing. And it, part of it was the speech impediment. And he kept saying, but I, I keep being told I can't be a public speaker with the speech impediment, that I need to learn to speak. Will you teach me to speak? I'm like, own it. Own mm-hmm. it. That's who you are. If you're up there speaking even to a small team or a stage and you're portraying something that you're not, people are going to pick up on that right away. They saw you walk in. <laughs> they may, they hear you talking in a different voice pattern one-on-one to the person pouring tea. And then you get up there and you're trying to fake something. Uh, too often they you'll get told, fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. That does not work. You have to work, be as if. You can do as if. And that works well. Let me explain the difference. Because fake it till you make it. The unconscious mind doesn't have a timeline, doesn't understand anything but literal words. So it hears, fake it till you make it. Okay, Sharon, we're just up here faking it. It doesn't really matter. We're just up here winging it, faking it. Mm-hmm. People go, what is the disconnect? Something is odd happening right now. They can't tell you're faking it because it's not on your forehead. But they're just like, wow, there's a big disconnect. However... Most people don't know this, but I'm actually very introverted. I love my alone time. I love to read. I love to recharge my batteries by myself. And I'm actually very shy. Introverted and shy are two different things. But I have some big extroverts in my world. So how can I get up and passionately talk about the things I geek out on, like communication and courage and body language? I have watched the patterns that my friends who are big extroverts do. And I step in and do those patterns. I do those behaviors. I am as if I am my extroverted friend. So I just channel my extroverted friend while I'm up there on stage. The fear disappears. The butterflies start flying in formation. It's fabulous. Mm, That's a very good distinction. Thank you for explaining that because I know that uh, fake it till you make it is quite a... uh, an often given piece of advice. Oh, it's a and, catchy line. It's a catchy yeah, tagline, but yeah, it doesn't it work. But, but acting as if, you know, this was, uh, you know, part of your, uh, um, I don't know, DNA, I suppose, or channeling someone that you admire in this type of situation is a little bit different. It actually, to the unconscious mind, it's a very big distinction. When we say it out loud, it doesn't sound like a big distinction, but I want people to play with that concept. If you see, you have a friend, maybe you say, well, Sharon, I want to be more confident. So who in your world do you say is confident? And they'll say, let's say, they'll say, let's say Kate. And okay, what does Kate do that makes you think she's confident, that led you to believe she's confident? Oh, you know, she has a very controlled voice pattern and she stands, you know, with great posture and she makes great eye contact. I said, what would happen if you tried those things? And so mm-hmm. then there's some role playing and they go, oh, well, that's not so hard, is it? Mm-hmm. So I would say play with the patterns of people that have successfully doing what you want to do. 
Yeah, and faking it, it comes across as inauthentic and to yeah. not just your subconscious mind, but also to the people that you're talking with. Yeah, how many times have we seen something up on stage where we're just sort of like wanting to shield our eyes because we feel so bad for the person? Mm-hmm. They've usually been told something like visualize the audience naked or fake it till you make it. Neither of those work. I never understood that visualize the audience naked thing. It's like, how is that supposed to make me feel comfortable on stage? I, I know, that was always my question, too. The thought behind it is that since if everybody else is uncomfortable as you are, now that that pre-assumes that the audience, some most of the people in the audience are uncomfortable naked. What happens if you're talking at the, the naked people retreat, whatever that is, nudist colony, you know? Right. <laughs> so it... it it to me it then you start if you visualize the people naked what happens you don't have authentic eye contact mm -hmm. because your unconscious mind is like um this is a little uncomfortable i'm you know boy that person is really um i don't you know they're so good looking i'm distracted if i'm visualizing seeing abs on that person or something you know <laughs> So it just doesn't work. The unconscious mind is too literal to have thing, catchy phrases like that work. Yeah, yeah. You've written seven books on what seems to be a wide range of topics from sales to living your passion to mindfulness. We'll get to your recently released children's book later. What inspired you to write them and what's the common thread? Mm, courage and communication is the common thread always. And... I guess the best answer is it's what's ever intriguing me at the time. I feel that there's a constant pattern to all my work, but that's only because I'm walking my walk. And if people from the outside, it's difficult to see the constant pattern. And that's one thing I always talk about is unconscious biases. I see the perfect pattern, but who else has walked in my shoes? So they don't, no one else sees the perfect pattern. But the, per the pattern is being courageous, stepping up in your life, being courageous taking those risks that you want to take, being impeccable with your word is an act of courage, setting boundaries is an act of courage, and all of those will get you to where you want to go if mm -hmm. you know how to talk about what you do. And so that's that communication part, that conscious communication part. Mm. You're also a sought-after speaker and workshop facilitator on the topics of communication, body language, and leadership, and I'm sure you've worked with quite a diverse population. We all come to the table, as you just mentioned, with our own preconceived ideas based on our upbringing and education. Have you encountered cultural differences that influence how receptive people are to embracing the concepts and techniques that you teach? Oh, all the time. Every audience is different. We want to go beyond the idea. Let's define the word culture. To me, we have the larger culture, like were you raised in Europe or were you raised in Africa? Were you raised in the States? Were you... now, and then you have smaller cultures. Were you raised in the southern states? Were you raised mm -hmm. in the northeastern states? Were you raised in the Pacific Northwest? Then you have smaller cultures. Were you raised in Oregon or Washington in the Pacific Northwest? Then you have smaller cultures where you raised in Portland or Seattle or some of the rural communities like Spokane or Pendleton. And so we got to define culture. Oftentimes people just get this great big broad swath of a culture, but they don't realize that every audience is made up of multitudes of culture. And just be aware that regardless if it's any audience over a small number, 
Well, actually, you could do it even with a small number, but you can control it a little easier when the group is small. But typically, uh, a speech is, let's say, 50 or plus, 50 or more. Uh, you're doing a speech type of thing. You'll probably offend somebody at some point, whether mm-hmm. it's by a hand signal, you made eye contact too long with them, as though, or you didn't make eye con- enough eye contact with them. There's going to be something that you do that offends someone in the group. Just know that and own it. It's okay. It can always be dealt with with all those faux pas. Then the other part of this is in our body language, stay away from body language slang. That's like the okay sign. That's like the thumbs up. That's like the peace sign or the victory sign. Stay away from cultural, non-verbal cultural slang. Because those are read by multiple people in multiple cultures, multiple ways. Here in the States, the OK sign is good. Other places like in Asia, the OK sign, don't ever do that. The thumbs up is good in some places here in the States. In other cultures, the the Middle Eastern cultures and other cultures, uh, Mediterranean cultures, you don't want the thumbs up. So Mm -hmm. how many of those people might be in your audience, especially if it's a larger audience? good chance they are. So I say, you pro- just know you're going to faux pas, and that's okay, and stay away from nonverbal cultural slang. Yeah. How can people figure out, <clears throat> because I, I'm not sure, especially people who are raised with the cultural slang, how do people know which things are kind of slang and which are just regular body language? Now, if we're talking in business, let's go to business, because if we're talking in social situations, it's very much in the moment. You have to look for shocked, confused, or annoyed, which is Mm. different head movements. Mm -hmm. You look for that in an audience, too, but it's quicker if you're just talking one-on-one at a networking event. If they pull their head back or their eyes open wide, something that you would label shocked, confused, or annoyed, you stepped in it somewhere. You have mm-hmm. to replay, replay the mental videotape to figure out, okay, what, what, what just happened? Did I say the wrong word? Did I, you know, is it my tone mm-hmm. of voice? I don't know what happened. However, in a larger group, you can see shock, confused, annoyed too, but it's a little more difficult to see it. But you'll feel a shift in the audience, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. It, it's it's mm-hmm. a nuance. Once you're on stage for once or twice and the butterflies are starting to fly in a little bit more formation, you'll begin to pick up on the energy of the audience. I know that sounds a little woo-woo, but that's the best way to explain it. And you'll begin to see this nonverbal wave. So you have the early responders that go shocked first, and then everybody else will sort of feel that energy of somebody just went shocked. Should I be shocked? And so they go shocked. And then pretty soon Mm -hmm. people start looking at each other like they're confused. Should I be shocked? Yeah. And then you know that you've made a cultural mistake. And the best way to make a cultural, survive a cultural mistake is oftentimes, as I say, create nonverbal amnesia. And that's the way to step aside, look back to where you were talking, shake your head no, like you can't believe it, looking at that fake person, that phantom person that's over there, shake your head no, and pop up as a whole new person. That works beautifully. We call that nonverbal amnesia. We call that creating amnesia on stage with your audience. It, it works beautifully. Like you physically look over <laughs> to where you were just standing and shake uh-huh. your head? Uh-huh. 
as if you were, you can even lower your glasses, you can drop your chin, just as you're scolding that phantom you that was just there. Huh. It, a lot of people will start to laugh. They'll think it was a joke. It can immediately change the trajectory of what just happened. Wow. But That's interesting. Yeah. Now, then if that doesn't work, then you have to, as I say, mention the elephant in the room and apologize. But usually your faux pas aren't that big. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, right. it, it's not, we're not talking purposeful faux pas. The other thing I say is always, always do research, whether you're going into a company, what's their culture? Is it very community oriented? Is it very laid back? Is it millennial? Is it boomers? You know, what culture is their uh, group? Because then, you know, you can have a, a shorthand for it. And if you're going into a culture, you have no clue. And I actually do this with every culture I go into, whether it's a culture like I'm going to France or it's a culture that I'm going into a large corporation or I'm going to speak at a university. I ask the person who hired me very culturally specific questions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are, tell me about the group. What's important to the group? What's not important to the group? And then I always say, why do you say that? Because I'm looking for this person's biases. Right. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, we've got to take a short break. When we come back, the autoimmune hour and Pinky Chenille and the Rainbow Hunters. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for joining us. Back now with your host, Kate Fessler. Welcome back to Change Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and today my guest is Sharon Saylor. Sharon, you host a podcast called The Autoimmune Hour on Life Interrupted Radio and through the eWomen Podcast Network. That's a very specific topic and audience. Have you been diagnosed with an autoimmune condition? Yes, three years ago. And that's what drove me into a passion to take my communications work into the world of how to advocate for yourself when you're feeling crummy <laughs> in, a, in a very big corporate driven, you know, chart checklist driven world. How do you advocate for what will and won't work for you? And I found when I was feeling at my worst, I was crummy at my worst, I would come home and say to family members, wow, with all of my training, I still had trouble getting 
my message across still had trouble being heard. I can't imagine what people without some of the tips and tricks that I have go through. Mm-hmm. And so that was the beginning of the autoimmune hour. I said, I want to share. And then I realized there's so much more that I share. Resilience, mindset experts on the show. I've uh, nutrition and diet and exercise people on the show. And doctors from all walks, naturopaths, acupuncturists, we'll say Western medical, trained physicians, all on the show. Because when you have an autoimmune condition, which most often, rarely will they say you're cured. You can get it in remission. You can become what we call, we're all thrivers, not survivors on the show. Mm-hmm. That there's so much information out there. How do you weed through it? How do you find it all? And I just am one of those people that love weeding through it. As you can probably tell how I geek out about communications. Once I discovered, once I was diagnosed with the autoimmune condition, I started geeking out. Okay, I got to know all I can about autoimmune. And here I am three years after the diagnosis. I go to the doctors, to the clinic, and they say things like, wow, Sharon, this is awesome. You're in the top, top, top percent of all our patients with this. And I'll say, this is so frustrating. Would you like to know what I'm doing? And they'll say, no, no, just keep doing it. That's why I did the autoimmune hour. Because you... I wanted to get the information out there. Now, my way, the right way? No, not for everybody. But it's a way. And part of the autoimmune hour is about showing you multiple, multiple ways. And you choose the one or ones that work for you. Mm -hmm. I interviewed a young woman not too long ago on this podcast who wrote a book called Beyond Powerful, Your Chronic Illness is Not Your Kryptonite. And she talks about how chronic illness can help you find your superpowers. Did this diagnosis help you in any way find yours? That's a great question, Kate. I love the title of the book, by the way. That's a great title. I agree with her. It changed the trajectory of my work, but I'm not so sure. It. I think I, I'd been blessed and already found my superpowers about 20 years ago, and that's mm-hmm. understanding nonverbal communication, understanding the unconscious mind, understanding the messages people don't realize they're sending and the little tweaks that would correct that or change the messages. So they're getting their communication across. I just chose a different, a different path because that was for teaching people to advocate for themselves or teaching caregivers to advocate for their family and friends who aren't able to at that time advocate for themselves. So Mm -hmm. I, I totally understand what she's saying with it because can I see benefits out of the autoimmune diagnosis? Absolutely. I'm a much more patient person than I was three years ago. Much more patient. I can see so I'm much more passionate about so many things than I was three years ago. So I can understand the title and I, I love it. And I always encourage people, yes, when you get that diagnosis, and this, I just, if you have just a second, let me tell you a quick story. Sure. When I got the diagnosis, they said, you have dermatomyositis. Now, the unconscious brain goes, goody, I own something. (laughs) Because it's the words you have. And dermatomyositis, what the heck is that? That could have been supercalifragilisticexpialidocious to my conscious and my unconscious mind. They, you know, it doesn't know. 
Now, the problem is when we own something like that, it's very difficult to to get rid of it. (laughs) Mm. I argued with, when I heard that, I argued with my caregiver. I said, you know, let's talk about this for a second. I don't have dermatomyositis in the way you're saying. I am not going to take this tattoo across my forehead in red letters with that word. I will agree with you that, yes, there is a problem. The system isn't functioning correctly. But if my home had cockroaches, my home wouldn't be functioning correctly either. But that doesn't mean I own the cockroaches. It means I have cockroaches at the moment, but I am going to do everything I can to get rid of them. And that's how I approach being diagnosed with something that the doctors, they when they give you this diagnosis, they drop their head and their voice becomes really try to be careful and caring. And, and you're like, wow. They're just telling your unconscious mind that you own this. And so I'm on my soapbox. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that you explained that because one of the things that, that I do in my work is I help people to kind of reframe things as, you know, we can look at things in a variety of ways, right? And as you just said, if there are certain words that you use and messages to your subconscious brain, they really can be shifted into something else and so if we're aware of that then and we can do it consciously and as i'm sure you would say courageously um we can really make a huge difference in how our lives progress from that point absolutely amen it takes a lot of courage to say to and i i say white coat authority and some people get offended i don't i just mean that as talking about what we're trained from very early on that people in the medical community know it and we don't, and we go there to get information. We go there to get healed. And I say, no, we go there to get information. We go there to get educated by people smarter than us in that area. They're not smarter than us in the realm of it, but they're smarter than us in that area. Just like people come to you to get training and understanding and educated in change and, and resilience and all, you know, and business success. And just like people come to me for communication, I talk about we've got to be able to say to these people where we've been taught this unconscious bias since the time we were little, that they're an authority. Well, they're an expert. They know a lot. But are they an authority on you? No, Mm -hmm. no. I have found that many people in the three years I've been doing the autoimmune hour, multiple people that have healed or in many, many ways in ways I'd never heard of, yet it worked for them. And that's Mm -hmm. the critical thing to understand is, look, this person, we'll use a surgeon, okay? And a surgeon comes to you and says, you need to remove, I don't know, you need to remove your your colon, okay? And you're like, oh, what's that about? That sounds a little extreme. Yes, but you got to realize that's a surgeon's answer to a problem you can't solve if you're thinking that's a little extreme. Now, sometimes, right. sometimes they're accurate. Sometimes they're like, wow, you know, this has got all of this going on and this. And if you don't get that out of there, all of this is going to happen. Then I always say, you know, you got to weigh your choices. Mm-hmm. But understand when someone comes to you and you're just kind of blown away with the answer, whether it's a surgeon or anything else, you're like, well, wow, is that an answer? Is that an answer to, you know, that they're coming up with based on their biases because they don't 
have any other answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a critical thing. And that's true, not just in the medical community, but in life. When anybody gives you advice, going to a doctor, lawyer, uh, CPA, a a consultant like myself, whatever, you got to realize that we all, even if we know what an unconscious bias is, we still have to make choices being aware that people are going to give us expert advice based on unconscious biases. Yes, and you need to evaluate whether or not that advice works for you and and not feel bad about not taking it if it doesn't. Oh, absolutely. And it could be great advice for me, but not you. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the beauty of it. It could be absolutely the right advice for someone. Mm-hmm. But having the courage to say, say, you're like, whoa, that's a little bit extreme. I, you know, I thought it was just a little bit of gastritis or a little bit of a stomach or maybe the sushi from last night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and having the courage to say, wow, now, thank you very much. I'll take that under advisement or mm, thank you very much. That won't work for me mm-hmm. or even that won't work for me right now. That seems a bit extreme. I think I'll, I will explore other avenues. You know, there are plenty of ways to say thank you, but no thanks. Yes. So you recently released a children's book, Pinky Chanel and the Rainbow Hunters. What's the book about? Teamwork. See, this is the thread I talk about through my whole, it makes sense to me, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why a three to five year old age children's book? Because I have grandkids now. and. I think it's really imperative that we start teaching young people how to understand each other, how to ask questions, how to get along, how to work as a team, even when the book is uh, based on the color critters, there's the five colors of the rainbow. They all get mad at each other and they hide their colors. So the world goes black and white. And then Pinky and Princess Adeline, the two um, heroes of the story, have to get find the color critters and convince everyone to work together as a team to bring color back to the to save the rainbow and bring color back to the world now there's a lot in there in that story and in the rhyme about communication and getting along and one of my favorite lines is when green says yes but without blue i can't make teal (laughs) and see so There's a little rhyme that obviously it's a rhyming book, but that's one of my favorite lines because that's so true. We need each other. And I talk about this to the adults I work with. And so I wrote the story because I want the young people to start learning this at a very early age. Well, and also that we need all the colors of the rainbow in order to have a vibrant world, because that's very much in the news these days, too, of... You know, a lot of people are um, not understanding that we all are in it together. The unconscious biases are really having a heyday, really having a resurgence right now. (laughs) Our unconscious biases, sometimes they're conscious biases, which is unfortunate. And that's more difficult to change when it's a conscious choice. I know some people say, what do you mean that's more difficult to change? Because... They are aware of the things that they have chosen. And sometimes that's harder to refute. Mm-hmm. An unconscious bias, I go, oh, well, are you, you know, where th- that's an interesting bias, or that's an interesting belief. Tell me more about that belief. 
And as they're telling you about the belief, they go, huh, well, that's not really belief. As I'm telling you about that, that's my third grade school teacher's voice in my head. Right. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden they'll go, huh. Oh, so, so what do you think now? Oh. So really sometimes unconscious biases, once they're brought, shined a light on, are actually easier to change than a conscious bias. Mm-hmm. Well, and as my guest on on uh, last week's podcast said, it's it's better to uh, treat people and biases with kindness and compassion than with anger and confrontation, because it is oftentimes a matter of education and bringing a more awareness to the person, whether it's conscious or unconscious, of where that came from because a lot of times yeah they are sort of choosing it but not really because that's the way they were raised and that's the way their parents were and that's the way all their community is and they think they're choosing it but they're not really consciously choosing it and so when they become aware then they can maybe make a different choice or at least understand how that choice is impacting other people absolutely spot on because anger and anger is really judgment that's loud uh, anger is really judgment that's loud you know mm-hmm. that's expressing itself in a loud way and people will change they just resist being changed and mm-hmm. if you are coming from that place of judgment whether it's quiet like just an eye roll or loud like an anger you know you're yelling and stomping or what thrashing about People will hunker down and resist. They're like, whoa, this is a little bit extreme. Why do I want to go from my extreme to that extreme? Mm -hmm. So kindness, compassion, and questions. Mm -hmm. Open-ended questions that have no judgment to them. I've studied for years, and I love uh, Marion Way and Sharon Small's work on clean language. And just one of my favorite questions, there's a series of questions that you're taught through this program. My One of my favorite questions, especially dealing with what will loosely put in air quotes difficult people, is what would you like to have happen next? Mm. There's no judgment in that. There's no bias. Do you say it with a flat voice and even voice tone? And people have to stop. They think. They breathe. Oftentimes they regain control of themselves in that moment with, a, with an unbiased, open-ended question like that. It gives mm-hmm. them options. And so, yes, absolutely. Uh, but I always like to add and asking good questions and listening to the answer. And listening, yes, yes. Truly that is listening. the part that seems to be missing from all of the public discourse these days is actually listening to the, to the other party. Too many people are hearing, nobody's listening. Or mm. few, few people are listening. Too many people are hearing, but few people are listening. Mm-hmm. Well, we're almost out of time. So I have to ask you, what one book or resource besides your own changed your life that you would recommend to people? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Um, so many are flooding my mind right now. Resource or book? Oh, gosh. Um. I'm going to mention my men, my longtime mentor, any of his work, uh, Michael Grinder, and any of his work on uh, relationships and charisma. And uh, I just, his work radically changed my life 20 years ago. 
saw saw the world in an entirely different way after reading some of his work. Awesome. Well, how can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, great. Thank you. It's just SharonSailor.com. My last name is spelled S-A-Y-L-E-R. And so Sharon, one R, S-H-A-R-O-N-S-A-Y-L-E-R.com. And if you do forward slash gift, I have a great little ebook there that's about 25 or so pages that are about the seven top career killers I've seen in all my work. And you don't have to say, well, sure, I don't have a career. They can spoil sales conversations. They can spoil family relationships. They're the seven things. There's sort of my seven killers that I always am on the watch for. Yeah, that sounds like something everyone could use. Absolutely. And it's a fun, it's, it's short. I think it's 25 pages. It's not, not going to take you to like reading War and Peace or anything. And even if you just get one helpful hint from it, it'll probably be a big change in your communication. Absolutely. And I mix in both verbal communication and nonverbal and body language. So you'll get uh, a little flavor of all of them. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to go get mine right now. Sharon Saylor, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. And I enjoy your show. I'm just so thrilled to have you as a fellow podcaster because you bring such great information out for all of us. Well, thank you. It is amazing how much we communicate without even knowing it. Just becoming aware goes a long way toward mastering the subconscious messages we're sending. If you have something to add to the conversation, please leave a comment on the show page or on my Facebook page, First Class Life Solutions. If you'd like to be a guest on my show, please click on the link at the bottom of the show page, fill out the survey, and I'll be in touch. You can find links to the recommendations of my guests and to previous podcasts on my website, firstclasslifesolutions.com. Next week, my guest will be another fellow Pacific Northwesterner, Felita Hannah Poole. Best known for her no-excuse approach, Felita is one of America's pioneering game changers. She is a prolific international speaker, competent educator and motivator, and CEO of Inspired by Greatness Counseling and Educational Center, Inc., and Hannah's Home Care Agency, Inc., two of America's fastest-growing companies. She is a woman activist who has served in different countries, including Germany, Bosnia, Hungary, and throughout the United States. As an entrepreneur, a community activist, and advocate, she works tirelessly to promote change in the lives of all citizens, including those who are disenfranchised, by helping them to realize their dreams and live a better life. Felita is sought after by both individuals and organizations, and has been featured in several sold-out events, where she has used her gifts and life experiences to empower people to pursue change and come out of the pits of despair. Each day, she propels thousands with great wisdom using powerful, practical, and realistic strategies. Embracing the virtues virtues of sympathy and love, Felita is delightful and always relates to people with great compassion. I hope you'll join us. Until then, here's to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Bessler. Thanks for listening to Change, Redefining Success. EWN Podcast Network. 
I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at EWNpodcastnetwork.com.